0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew 11 and Luke 7 will be our two passages this morning. Matthew 11, verses 2 through 19, and Luke 7, verses 18 through 35. We will do a lot of back and forth, although I think... Primarily, we'll stick with the Matthew record this morning. And uh, between today and next week, we will, uh, most likely next week, we'll zero in on the material that's unique to to Luke. It's an interesting account because it, it is recorded by both Matthew and Luke. And yet they have elements that they have in common, yet they each one of them have elements that are unique to them. And so we will spend some time focused on that as well. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to assure we are filled with the Spirit, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have this morning to assemble together and to receive instruction. Father, we thank you for the freedom we have in this nation to come together. We thank you for your provision to keep these doors open, the bills paid, the lights on. Father, we thank you for the provision of a nursery worker to watch over the children and giving the mothers freedom to come to Bible class. And we just thank you for all these grace provisions in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right, episode 20 in the Life of Christ, Galilean ministry. Remember the numbering resets back to one again every time we start a new section in the Life of Christ. But this is the Galilean ministry, the longest of the sections. And uh, event number 20. It follows immediately the raising of that widow's son and... Uh, which is an event not recorded in Matthew, so we don't really see it here when I read from Matthew 11, two and following. When we do get over to Luke 7, you'll see that it follows that widow's son incident that we've been spending the last couple of weeks on uh, from Luke 7:11 7, through 17. So clearly when you pick it up in Luke 7:18 through 35, you can observe pretty easily there the, the sequence of events. Let's simply read through it here from Matthew 11. When John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Verse 7, as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now this is where the parallel with Luke stops. It will pick up again in verse uh, 16, but verses 12 through 15 are unique to Matthew. So let me read that. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Language that we're actually more accustomed to hearing in the book of Revelation, aren't we? Revelation chapter 2 and 3 with a church age application. Interestingly enough, it's here in the Gospel of Matthew while the church remains a mystery. Then in verse 16, down through verse 19, we return back to material that is parallel to the Gospel of Luke. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children. And they say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. All right, so that is the entire account in Matthew. Let's turn over to Luke for the moment, Luke 7. You can hold your finger there. We'll be right back to Matthew here in very short order. But in Luke 7, I want to highlight the structure of these verses and then uh, we'll get back to Matthew and I'll start giving you some points in Luke 7 the verses from 18 through 28 are uh, covered already by what we've read in Matthew ending with verse 28 uh, you know of those born among women there is no one greater than John then what we have unique to Matthew is verses 29 and 30. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So those are two verses that Luke records that were not recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Then when we get to verses 31 through 35, we're back to the to the parallel again with uh, the children and the, the little tunes that they keep uh, playing and the expectation that that uh, God has to march to our uh, to our tune, that's uh, obviously a problem, and we'll deal with that at some length. Okay, back to Matthew 11. Then we'll kind of give you a sense. We're going to go through the early section here this morning, and then uh, we'll save. The part that's unique to Matthew and then the part that's unique to Luke, we'll save those for next week. I think we'll, we'll be doing good to, to probably get that far. First of all, let's examine the parallel accounts under point one. And this, this will just help you get it on paper. And when you follow up on your own, then uh, this will help you keep, keep things sorted out. So point one, the parallel accounts in Matthew and Luke. The parallel accounts in Matthew and Luke. It's events like this that really caused the uh, skeptic to struggle, particularly those form critics and those that think that there was a cue once upon a time and that it, was, it underlined the gospel of, of Mark, and then Matthew and Luke both made use of Mark in order to write their gospels. Um, kind of crazy since Mark didn't even record this event, both Matthew and Luke did. And uh, and yet they had differences between them, uh, recognizing the fact that they weren't drawing on uh, identical sources. Matthew, in fact, was an eyewitness. Matthew's present for this event. Luke was uh, getting the information from eyewitness accounts when he was doing his own historical research. But in the parallel accounts, first of all, we'll just put it up here in subpoint A. There's your parallels. Matthew eleven two through eleven is parallel to Luke 7:18 through 28. Matthew 11:2 through 11 is parallel to Luke 7:18 through 28. And then the second parallel comes after a gap in each one. The second parallel comes Matthew 11:16 through 19 is parallel to Luke 7:31 through 35. So they start off identical, they end identical, but in the middle each gospel records information that's unique to that gospel. And you can just see the gaps right there. And I'll list them for you under B and C. Matthew eleven twelve through 15 is unique to Matthew. In other words, the content in those verses about the kingdom of heaven suffering violence and the nature of the angelic conflict that's presented there in Matthew. That's not recorded in Luke. Remember Matthew is the gospel of the King. Matthew is the gospel pre- preeminently oriented to the kingdom, and so we have the uh, the information there. Luke is the gospel of the humanity of Christ, Christ the man, and as such tends to emphasize the human responses in different uh, circumstances in different ways. So in Luke's account, he did, he uh, communicates the different human responses. Those who have been baptized by John received this message quite readily, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not, having refused John's baptism. And we'll talk about that. Why would they refuse John's baptism? You'd stop to think, well... Who would refuse it? Why not take it? The kingdom of heaven's in hand. Absolutely. Sign me up. Well, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they went out to investigate, to demand his credentials, to find out who he was or who he thought he was and why he was baptizing and what authority did he have to baptize. But they did not partake in the ritual. And that is, uh, that's extraordinary. And Luke is the one that records that for us. We'll have more to say on it when we develop that out. Now. The one thing that both Gospels make clear is the fact that John continues to have disciples. Why does he continue to have disciples as a mystery? But he does have them, and here's what he has them doing, under point two. John the Baptist maintained a network of students. Methetes is a disciple or a student, a learner. John the Baptist maintained a network of students to report to him concerning Jesus' activities. We note that both from the Matthew record and the Luke record, that they were involved in reporting, that they gave an account, they gave a report. Matthew eleven two, Luke seven eighteen. Both passages make the same observation. In Matthew eleven two it says when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. And he has a question. He's going to use these disciples as messengers in order to glean further information and report back to him. In Luke 7, the uh, disciples of John reported, and uh, I think that's Epangelo, reported Giving a formal report to him about all these things. What things? Well, the raising of the widow's son. The things that precede verse 18. In particular, verses 11 through 17. We talked about how momentous this miracle was. And we'll have more to say about it. But when, when Jesus um, reports to him, he gives him a list. Go and report what you see. The blind receive sight. Okay, well, that's a miracle. But, you know, prophets in the Old Testament did that too. Um, the lame walk, that's a miracle. Prophets in the Old Testament did that too. The lepers are cleansed. Another miracle, but once again we have Old Testament prophets who were doing the same thing. Uh, The deaf here, the dead are raised up. now. That's where it really comes down to, the dead are raised up. For the first time now, Jesus has resuscitated a human being and restored them back to physical life. That was something that you could say was done in the Old Testament, but it was only done three times. And significantly, it was done in prophetic anticipation of the Christ. And so now, having done the resurrection miracle or the resuscitation miracle on this widow's son, now it's like the last piece of the puzzle has fallen, fallen into place as far as John is concerned. Okay? And you ask, well, now what puzzle? He knew that this was the Christ. Didn't he already testify, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Of course he did did he not already say you know after me comes one whose uh, sandal i'm not worthy to untie because he existed prior to me he had every understanding of the christ when he baptized him so what's he been doing lately and is this truly is this a uh, is this a lack of faith on his part is he starting to second guess everything it's usually how this passage is taught we're not going to teach it that way what's really going on here what has he been doing since the baptism besides hanging out in jail all right, he's still maintaining a network of students. He's still maintaining learners, disciples, which means he's still teaching. What is he teaching? Well, what has been his role as a forerunner? We'll have a lot to say about this as we, as we proceed. But I want to start to consider the aspect and, and the plain language of this text when Jesus Christ himself testifies that John the Baptist is the greatest living believer on planet Earth other than christ himself all right of those born among women there has not arisen anyone greater than john the baptist yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he the privileges we have as the bride of christ in the church are amazing and uh and then beyond the privileges we have as the bride of Christ in the church are the kingdom saints that are coming in the kingdom yet to come. So the, John, as great as he is, is a believer in the dispensation of Israel in, in his own stewardship, and uh, he has his role to play. But we take, this, we take this verse at face value to recognize that he is truly a great believer. He is absolutely a great believer. He has an understanding, he has a faith, he has a courage. And so his his question here is not one of doubt and fear. I think it's totally inconsistent to take it that way and then to read the Lord's praise in verse 11. His question is not one of fear. His question actually is one of utmost faith and maturity. So we'll describe that as well. In fact, let's get right to it. Um, you got the vocabulary down there on mathētēs as a disciple, as a learner. M-A-T-H-E-T-E-S, mathetes Number 3101, a learner, a pupil, a disciple. This is what we're expected to be. God's not merely content with us to be saved. That's the first step. You can't be a disciple until you are saved. But once you are saved, we're expected to be a learner. God desires for all men, what? To be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That upon our regeneration, upon our salvation, we begin that process of growth. Growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Great Commission is not go forth and convert people. The Great Commission is go forth and make disciples. Turn them into mathetes, into methetai. All right? That's the Great Commission. We are expected to be disciples. The one who abides in my word is truly my disciple, it says in John chapter 8. So it's all about becoming disciples. Now, John's question, under point 3, John's question. He said to him, are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? So sub-point A, there's the question. Sub-point A, are you the expected one, or shall we, you can put in parentheses, do we? That's the one difference between Matthew and Luke. Matthew says, shall we, Luke says, do we? Are you the expected one, or shall we, do we? Are we looking for someone else? Present tense in this verb, so it is an ongoing present activity. Are we looking for someone else? Now, great question for a guy who's in prison uh, with a death sentence on his head, ready to lose his head. Are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Continuing to look. Continuing to anticipate the coming of Christ. Christ is already here. But he's continuing to look. Why is that? I think it's vital that we recognize it because that's the whole point to this passage. And if we, if we fail to identify what John's really asking here, then we think either he's totally lost it, he's totally given up, he's in some kind of a reversionistic despair, or we're the ones that are confused and we've got to figure out what he's asking. Now the expected one, I, I don't like the word expected, I like the word Coming. Although if someone is coming, I guess from our perspective, we could be expecting him. So expected one is okay, but expected one really translates that from our perspective. The, the coming one actually translates the verb. The verb is erchomai, which means to come. Um, and ha, erchomai, is a noun, the coming one. So there's your vocabulary. It's the same both in Matthew and in Luke. The verb is er-chimai, erchomai, E-R-C-H-O-M-A-I, erchomai. Erkamai, all right, that's the verb, it means to come. Now, in a middle voice, interestingly enough, because whenever you come, there you are. (laughs) So you're not only doing the activity, but then you're also experiencing the results of the activity, because if you have come, then you're there, so you've done it, and you're experiencing the consequences of having done it. So erkamai is always in a middle voice, that's the nature of your my verbs, erkamai like dunamai and, and uh, ginamai and a lot of the my verbs we've looked at here lately. But we put a the in front of it. The. And we give it your uh, nominative masculine ending. So we just took a verb and we turned it into a noun. What does that mean? We take a verb and we put it into a noun. What is that? It's a, it's a, it's a part of simple. Okay? And we do it all the time. We do it all the time. If... Uh, If uh, listen is a verb, then a listener, right? One who listens, the listening one, a listener. Farm is a verb. Somebody who farms is a farmer. Fish is a fisher or a fisherman. Okay? Um, We do it all the time. We take verbs, we turn them into nouns. And that's what happens here. The verb is to come, and he is the comer, the coming one. Now, you could say, well, lots of people go places, right? Lots of people come. You all came to church this morning. Does that mean you're coming ones? No, this is the coming one. This is the one unique, the one who's coming is unlike any other coming in the history of the universe. This is the one, see? It's like son of God. We're sons of God. We're daughters, you know, male, female. We've got sons of God, daughters of God here this morning. But there is one unique, no other kind of son like him, son of God, Jesus Christ. So when you put a V in front of it with a big old capital T, what are you doing? You are highlighting the unique nature of that one C. We can talk about tribulation all day long. In the world, you will have tribulation. We have tribulation, more or less. Kind of soft and easy in this country. Believers overseas have more tribulation than we have it. Believers throughout history have had more tribulation than we have it today. The, ask the believers in the 1st and 2nd century when they're getting thrown to the lions about their tribulation. All right, But we have lots of tribulation with a little t. When we talk about the tribulation with a capital T, capital T, the, capital T, tribulation, what have we just done? We've pinpointed that seven-year period of hell on earth that's coming up, haven't we? We've pinpointed that. And we do the same thing here with Ha or Kaminas, Scads of people. Everybody comes some, somewhere. You go somewhere. You're a coming one. You're a going one. But here is one whose coming is so unique because it's been prophesied. It's been planned since before the foundation of the world. It's been announced. It's been hoped for. It's been spoken of. So it, it is uh, a reference to the Christ. It is a reference to his work assignment and in coming into the world. The Baptist understands it. He already announced it. So why is he asking again? All right, now, let's take some time on this coming one to understand what all is expected with this. And then I think we'll have a better clue with what the baptizer is asking about here. First of all, so point one, the coming one was understood as the prophet. The coming one was understood as the prophet. We talked about him last week, a couple weeks ago, that Deuteronomy uh, passage where um, Moses had promised that a great prophet would come, a prophet like unto him. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15. We dealt with it just last week. But if you join me in John chapter 6, you see it spelled out here. the feeding of the 5,000, so it's an episode we haven't gotten to yet. But he feeds the 5,000, and they've got loaves left over and fish left over, and they're filling their baskets after they fed everybody. And their testimony in verse 14 is is quite remarkable. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet. And, And just review your notes when you get the chance, what we studied last week and dealt with from Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15. The prophet. The one that Moses said would be coming. So they said, This is truly the prophet, but it's not just the prophet. What else is he? The coming one. Ha erkamenas. The one who comes into the world. The one who comes into the world. I mean, that statement alone says volumes, doesn't it? Before you came into the church, where were you? This morning. But just, I mean, mere moments before you came into the church, you were outside the church, right? On the front porch or in the parking lot. And then you came into the church, except for those that sneak in the back door. But you were still, you were outside, then you came into the church. This phrase, coming into the world, tells us what? There you go. There you go. Okay. Itself, it testifies in a consistent manner with the uh, nature of his pre-existence, his his, uh, deity as God the Son, who from all eternity has been with the Father. There will be more passages that also address that. The coming one was understood as with Christ, the Son of God, John 11, verse 27. See, it's remarkable. These aren't, uh, the testimonies we're reading here are coming from just your average believers. They're coming from, I mean, they're coming from a crowd here. Not coming from John the Baptist, not coming from a bunch of scribes or a bunch of Bible experts. They're just coming from basic, ordinary believers, your average believer in the pew. And they've been in Bible class, they've learned some things about God's Word, and it's their testimony that's pinpointing him as the coming one, the prophet, the one who comes into the world. In John 11, it's Mary, or Martha, one of those sisters. Let's read it. John 11. Okay, it's Martha. In verse 27, when he gives the great I am, the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. That is, he who believes in me possesses the eternal Zoe life. So he will continue to live with the eternal Zoe life even if he dies physically, losing his biological physical life. She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are, notice, the Christ, Ha Christos, the anointed one, in Hebrew the Messiah, the Son of God. Notice the third phrase, because this is a this is a trinity of, of expressions here. You are the Christ, you are the Son of God, you are the Ha erkomenos he who comes into the world. The Christ, the Son of God, the one who comes into the world. See, this is Martha's testimony. Just a average believer sitting in Bible class learning the Word of God. The coming one. It's a vital title. This is what was understood at the time. We've got we to grab a hold of this because this is what John the Baptizer would have understood. And even more, John the Baptizer would have understood this as the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. All right. Thirdly, the coming one was understood as the one bringing peace and justice. Hebrews 10.37 The coming one was understood as the one bringing peace and justice. Hebrews 10.37 You say, well, wait a minute. Hebrews wasn't written yet. I understand that. Hebrews 10:37 But the author of Hebrews understood it because he was actually quoting from the Old Testament Hebrews ten thirty seven. well, verse 36 says, You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Now, why is it important that this is now in the book of Hebrews? And yet it's a quote from the Old Testament. Okay, let me finish reading this. Yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Alright, now, there's a much larger context there in Hebrews 10. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna limit it right in there, okay? Focus in on verse 37, which is a quote from the Old Testament. Now, the coming one. Believers in the Old Testament have an expectation that He's a coming one. Part of that expectation is that He's the prophet from Deuteronomy 18. Part of the expectation is that He's the Christ, the Son of God, All right, from a variety of other sources. Part of that expectation is that He's going to bring peace and justice. Now, John's in prison. He's observing certain of these characteristics, certainly. But he hadn't quite seen this kingdom coming in yet. He hasn't quite seen the peace and justice being established yet. So he's starting to see a, a, a difference. He's seeing certain things that are coming true and certain things he's not seeing yet. But the reason why I wanted to have this Hebrews quote rather than go back to the Old Testament. I think it was from... Joel or Amos or somewhere. I can pull that up for you here in a moment. Hebrews eleven thirty-seven. No, Hebrews 10, 37. Habakkuk 2, 3. How many times did you turn to Habakkuk? The righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2, 4. One of the most well-known Bible verses in the world. Paul quotes it. Lots of New Testament writers quote it, but it comes from Habakkuk. All right. Because this is a promise, an expectation written by Habakkuk and believers in the Gospel would have had an understanding of this. Martha would have had an understanding of this. The crowds there that in the feeding of the 5,000 would have had an understanding of this. John the Baptist would have had an understanding of this. They would have been... Hoping, expecting in this coming one to provide for peace and justice in the earth. Habakkuk says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. That's such a great passage that applies to us today in terms of prayer. Because through prayer, we're on the rampart. Through prayer, we're keeping watch. And uh, how are we going to reply when he answers our prayers, when he speaks to us? The Lord answered me and said, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. (laughs) All right. This is a bad news message. Get out of there. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal. It will not fail, though it tarries. Wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. That is so important because we get caught up in prophecies and we say, well, they're taking too long. Or, well, how come, it's not, how come it's not fulfilled yet? Second Peter chapter 3, we count God as being slow. He says, no, God's not slow. He's faithful. We only think He's slow because we're human beings and we can't relate to His perspective, which counts a day as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day, and so forth. We're just the impatient, puny creatures of time. It's not delaying. It might tarry because our God's a God of grace and mercy, but it will be fulfilled. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. And it goes on. Now, gathering the nations, collecting the peoples, and then they get to take up a, a taunt song. Now, that's all from, from Habakkuk. So, put yourself now in the Gospels. Martha and this crowd and John the Baptist and all these guys, they're claiming Habakkuk too as a promise. Here comes the coming one. Here's the coming one. In very little while, he who is coming will come. He will not delay. Here's the coming one. And yet John the Baptist says, I'm not seeing it yet. I'm not seeing it yet. So he's got questions. Why am I not seeing it yet? There has to be an answer for why I'm not seeing it yet. Because I'm not doubting the promise. God said it. I believe it. But I'm not seeing it yet. So I want to know why is it that it's not happening Yet. I don't doubt that it's going to happen. But I'm not seeing it yet. And so the question that John the Baptist asked is is pointed right there. Another good reason for turning to Hebrews 10 and verse 37 is the recognition that by the time Hebrews was written, the author of Hebrews, Barnabas or whoever it might have been, the author of Hebrews cites this and continues to look forward as if this has not yet been fulfilled because it hasn't. It's still a little while. Now we have a perspective because we're in between the two advents, right? The author of Hebrews is in between the two advents. He's able to see like we're able to see that Christ came and that Christ is coming again. John the Baptist didn't know that. Martha didn't know that. The crowd at the feeding of the 5,000 didn't know that. We're spoiled because we know of two advents. They didn't know that. The whole concept of, of the coming one didn't make it clear that he was coming twice. All right. So if we take the time to think these things through, John the Baptist's question starts to take a little more focus. Fourthly, note the distinction between being born and coming into the world as is declared in John 18:37. John 18:37. John eighteen thirty seven. Pontius Pilate. He's been arrested. The Jews want to put him to death. They're not permitted to do so. They need the Romans to do that for them. Therefore, Pilate said to him, "So you are a king." Jesus answered, "You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and." For this, I have come into the world. Do you see that? There's a distinction that's being made there. Yes, he was born, of course. Virgin birth, the humanity of Jesus Christ, taking a human body and being born, coming into the world. But then he can say on the one hand, for this I was born. But he could also say for this, I came into the world. Because in pre-existence as God the Son, he's always been. It's, it's, it's neat the way the Lord adapts this and uses this in his testimony upon his pilot because this is exactly the way Isaiah presented it when he said, uh, a child will be born to us, a son will be given. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. A child will be born to us, a son will be given. So why was Isaiah highlighting two different things there? Why is Jesus highlighting two different things here? Because he's the only begotten, he is the son born, but he's also the son given, the coming one, the one coming into the world, the one coming into the world. Finally, under point five, the coming one, we still orient to the coming one, but for you and I in the church, it's a little different. The coming one is now awaited in terms of his second coming The coming one is now awaited in terms of his second coming. And we know that now because of where we are and what has already taken place and what he has said when he came the first time. But this is our privilege based on hindsight, and we can't criticize the Baptist for not understanding it in his day the coming one is now awaited in terms of his second coming Matthew 10:23 You know what's interesting he sends out his disciples two by two he gives them instructions He says in Matthew 10:16 I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves so be shrewd as serpents and be innocent as doves and then he talks about conflict Brother will be betrayed, brother to death, father is child. Children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And it's very interesting because we have here what I title the prophetic shift. He's giving them instructions that apply to them right there, right then, that day, in their stewardship. But it also looks ahead to the great tribulation. It looks ahead to what's going to happen when disciples of Jesus Christ, when Jewish disciples of Jesus Christ go forth to a Jewish people in unbelief. The tribulation of Israel. You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Has nothing to do with... People try to turn that into a gospel message today. That you have to believe and you have to endure to the end to be saved. In other words, you can lose your salvation. Blah, blah, blah. Okay? Well, they're totally wrong. Why they're wrong is they're not putting that verse into the tribulational context it needs to be in. And enduring to the end means you know... When Antichrist signs that treaty, you know you got seven years. And when he betrays that treaty halfway through, you know that you got three and a half years. And when that, sun, that sign of the Son of Man appears in the sky and the stars fall and the devil has that great wrath and Jews are now getting massacred by the bushel, you know the Christ is coming. And there's a definite timeline that he's going to arrive with. And you've got to endure to the end, physically live and survive through the through the time, it's a, it's a tribulational passage. It has nothing to do today. If, if somebody throws that at you as a salvation verse today, throw it right back at them. Say, no, thank you. I'm not in the tribulation. I, I'm not participating. <laughs> I'm not participating in the tribulation. I'm not participating in the Antichrist program on earth. And I'm not going to participate in this fruitless discussion. Now, if you really want to talk about rightly dividing the word of truth, we can do that. But that's not the gospel. Anyway. The one who endures to the end will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Right here, Jesus Christ starts to teach his disciples that there's going to be a second coming. That there's going to be a second coming. He doesn't give them all the details on it yet, but there will be a coming by the Son of Man. Over in chapter 16, verses 27 and 28. Verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels. See, He's starting to teach His disciples. The cross is getting closer and He's going to start to teach His disciples there's going to be a second coming. And this one's not going. The second one's not going to be uh, laying aside privileges and and coming as a babe in a manger. This time he's coming in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will then repay every man according to his deeds. When he comes in second advent, it's going to be with power and great glory. And. Um, he even tells them that there's some of them standing right there who will not taste death until they see the Son of man coming to his kingdom and I believe what happens is six days later he transports them forward in time and they actually enter into the kingdom and they see a transfigured Christ and Moses and elijah in uh, matthew twenty four thirty matthew twenty four thirty Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. See, this is the great tribulation where the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke of uh, is revealed. And, and uh, Matthew 24 is not a rapture passage. It's a second advent passage. It deals with Israel. It deals with the coming of their king. And again, we have a enduring to the end to be saved in verse 13. We have a gospel of the kingdom that shall be preached in verse 14. We have the abomination of desolation in verse 15, which Daniel the prophet spoke of. You've got to understand the book of Daniel. You're clueless for the book of Revelation. Then those who are in Judea must flee. Just like Habakkuk says, you're on the wall, you're watching, and the word comes. The word is, run! (laughs) All right? And don't even, if if you don't have a coat with you, forget it. You can't go back to get it. And if you're pregnant, you're in a lot of trouble, because you don't run very fast when you're pregnant. if you're nursing babies... And notice in verse 21, there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor there ever will. It is unique. There has never been anything like it. There will never be anything like it again. Unless those days have been cut short. There it is. Unless those days had been cut short. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Because I said a moment ago, we got a calendar antichrist signs a treaty we got a seven-year calendar we got a countdown he betrays it halfway through we got a calendar we got a countdown three and a half years but now we find out that god's a god of mercy and he cuts it short he cuts it short so you might have a day marked on your calendar that says okay this is when the three and a half years is up this is when christ returns this is when uh armageddon will be over however this passage says no it's cut short so he can still come in like a thief. And they still don't know exactly when. The sign appears. They know he's on the way, but they don't know when. And those days have been cut short. False Christ, false prophets will arise and so forth. All this is tribulational study. Behold, I have told you this in advance. Second, there's nothing mystery about second advent. Somebody in Spokane pointed that out. That's why the rapture can't be the same as the second advent, because the rapture is a mystery. Rapture was mystery doctrine, kept in reserve, unrevealed, not not given in the Old Testament or in the Gospels. It was reserved for the the, uh, the church to be fulfilled. This isn't the gospel, gospel. This isn't the rapture. Rapture is a mystery. This isn't a mystery. The Lord's spelling out here what Second Advent is going to be all about. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, verse 29, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give us light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That'll get your attention. <laughs> You walk out after a movie one night and you look up and all the stars are gone. the moon's gone, everything's gone, it's dark. And the powers of the heavens are shaking. every demon and fallen angel on this earth is absolutely terrified. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. One star will then shine. No moon, no other planets, no other stars. One star will start shining in the in the heavens. And it will grow and grow and grow and get brighter and brighter and brighter. And they're going to hate it. All right. All that's second advent. But the Christ is coming. Verse 27, just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. He is the coming one. And he starts to teach his disciples that there will be a second coming, something you and I understand very well today. Chapter 25 and verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Second Advent, He is the coming one. Acts 111. (laughs) I love Acts 111 because they watch Him ascend up into heaven. After He had said these things, He was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received Him out of their sight. And they were still gazing intently into the sky. So here's these eleven, Peter and the other knuckleheads, right? And Jesus is caught up, and they're all standing there, looking up at the sky. Like a bunch of stupid geese that are about to drown. Turkeys. Turkeys will drown in the rain. Why? Because the, the water will hit them on the head, and they'll look up to say, Huh, what was that? What was hitting me on the head? And they're so stupid, they would... That's why you got to get them in out of the rain. You've got to keep them under cover. They will drown in the rain. Trying to figure out what that is that's hitting them on the head. So there's Peter and these other guys. Gazing up in the sky. Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. Angels appear and they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? <laughs> you have drowning turkeys. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come. He is the coming one. He's still the coming one. He will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. In other words, he departed in the cloud. He will come with the clouds. He will land on that very same Mount of Olives in uh, power and great glory. Uh, In the epistles, we have this. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. We still view our Savior as the coming one. For us, though, it's the second coming. and We understand that now. Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time but wait until the Lord comes he is the coming one 1 Corinthians 11:26 As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes he is the coming one 2 Thessalonians 1:10 There is another coming one the counterfeit The Antichrist, however, doesn't change the fact that our Lord is still the coming one. God's righteous judgment on those who afflict you deals out retribution. They pay the penalty of eternal destruction, it says in verse nine, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes To be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. So he is the coming one. In chapter 2, you're introduced to another coming one, that is, the one whose coming is in accord with all the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. That's Antichrist. We'll have more to say about him because starting Sunday we're beginning a book of Daniel series followed by a book of Revelation series. So you're going to get everything you, you never wanted to know about Antichrist you're going to get in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation coming up starting Sunday morning. Basics is over. We finished Basics last Sunday. So you've had Basics and now we're going to Revelation. Why not? <laughs> get Daniel and Revelation and uh, we'll give those book studies as back-to-back studies. All right. He is the coming one. He is the coming one, or shall we look for another? Uh, Point B: the aspect of looking, because we are looking. The verb prosdikao, when he says, "Shall we look? Shall we look, or do we look? Are we looking?" Pros o is your verb. Not a very common verb. So you want to get this down. This isn't a word you're going to see every day. Pros Pros-da-ka-o is the verb number forty three twenty eight. As it appears in the text, it appears as pros dokomen. Pros it has the omen ending for the we are we looking. Uh, because it's an a-o verb, you haven't had these contractions yet, like the a-o verb contractions, but it does contract, and so we have an omen instead of an omen. Prostokomen instead of prostokomen. Okay? Now, the, the problem that arises then, because it's prostacomen rather than prostokomen, because it's an a-o verb, it's a contracted verb, is that this verb can be, it is a present active verb, but it could be either indicative or subjunctive. Either way. If, it's a, if the verb is a present active indicative, then the form we would have it in would be prostakomen, like you see it there. But if the verb is subjunctive, a present active subjunctive, it would have the same exact form. It would still be prostakomen. And so, as translators, we're left with a question. Do we take Prostock as an indicative or as a subjunctive? And it is legitimate to translate it either way. Now, the difference between an indicative and a subjunctive an indicative states what we are doing, a subjunctive indicates what we should be doing. Which is why we have the true translations we have one in Matthew, one in Luke. He says, Shall we look for another? As a subjunctive translation. In Luke he says do we look for another. As an indicative translation. They're both appropriate translations. Now. I don't think it really matters if we take it as an indicative or a subjunctive. The, the uh, content of what's communicated there is identical anyway. Whether it's a shall we or a do we. The fact is that uh, the Baptist wants to know. Now, the verb prostakao, dokeo is a thinking word. Dokeo is a thinking word. Any uh, docetism or dokeo, um there's some English terms that come from this. Uh, but dokeo is to give thought to. And with pros, it's something that's in front of you. So you're trying to think about something in the future. You're trying to think about something coming up. You're thinking about, you're anticipating something. You're not thinking about something that's right where you are. You're not thinking about, you're not remembering something that's happened in the past. With Prostakel, you're anticipating. You are focusing your thought on something that is in the future. Giving thought to something that is viewed as lying in the future. And we can render it as to wait for, to look for, or to expect. But the, the impact is that it's a thinking word. Say so you can wait without thinking, Right? We do it all the time. (laughs) You're just killing time. You're waiting for something to happen, but you're not really putting much thought into it. It'll get here when it gets here, so don't worry about it. Or you give it some thought while you're waiting. In other words, you're not just passing time. You're not just killing time. You're not just twiddling your thumbs, but you're putting active thought into why it is that it's going to happen and what you're going to do when it happens. I think some people are waiting on the rapture just with... With the, the twiddling their thumbs and not really putting much thought into it. Thinking, oh, well, it'll happen someday. Not really that worried about it. When we're commanded to look forward expectantly, when we're commanded to think about it, to dwell upon it, to have the return of Christ in the forefront of our thinking, day by day, moment by moment, because it's that principle of imminency that is a goad to our godliness. That prompts us, that reminds us that he can come back this moment. So I'm giving it that thought. I'm putting my mind into that. And it's the context indicating whether you do this in longing. You know, when I was overseas for six months in Desert Storm and, and uh, went through the first Gulf War and then uh, I was engaged to Sharon at the time and uh, was I, do you think I was anticipating returning home and seeing my fiance again and, and getting married? Of course. I put a lot of thought into that. So I fulfilled the verb prostakeo. Now in the context, though, you have to determine if, is there some longing involved in that? Is there some fear involved in that? Because you can use the same verb. It might be something that you've been dreading. Oh, I didn't want this day to come. I've been afraid of this day. And so you've been thinking about it because there's a fear attached to it. Or maybe there is no emotion, either love or fear or anything else. It's just a neutral state of mind. The case, though, is whatever the emotional state is doesn't matter. The activity is still one of thinking. That your mind is actually wrestling with the event. It hasn't happened yet, but you're anticipating it. You're you're looking for. You are expecting it. He says, "Do we look for another? Do we look for another? A heteros." Remarkably enough, for the beginning Greek students, we've learned two words for other. We've learned heteros and we've learned alos. Heteros is number 2807. Alos is number 243. And some grammars really go into a lengthy detail on what the difference is between heteros and alos. I find it fruitless because Galatians 1, 6 and 7 uses them interchangeably. This, this very incident uses them interchangeably. Matthew uses heteros. Luke uses alos. Do we look for another? I think we really miss the boat if we, if we um, get distracted by the vocabulary, whether it's heteros or a loss. In either case, what the Baptist is asking, is there going to be a second Christ? Is there a second Christ? Is there another? Now, you and I look at that and say that's ludicrous. Not so. And I'll show you why. Oh, I'm out of time. How could there be another? How could there be another? Well, he's seeing certain things being fulfilled, but he's also seeing other things not being fulfilled. So it's a question on his part. All right, you're the coming one. No doubt about that. And you're doing these things. But these things here are being left undone. So does that mean there's another coming one? Does that mean there's a second coming one? And and while Jesus is here as the coming one doing all these, is there another Christ that's going to come and do all these? Is he going to work with a pairing? In other words, we've got an Elijah. Are we going to have an Elisha? We had a Moses. There's a Joshua. Think how many times God worked with pairings. Think how many times he worked with, say, Moses and Aaron, for example. Think how many times he worked with pairings. And, the Baptist, and John the Baptist now wants to know, are you the coming one or is there another coming one? See, are you the coming one and only, or is, are you a coming one and there's another coming one? It's a legitimate question, and we'll show you why next week. Um, and then after we deal with that, then we will focus in on the uh, the, the kingdom being taken by violence. And uh, we will also look at the promises that uh, are associated with this. So there's, uh, there's a lot more to go, but I think we got a good start on it this morning. Any questions before I close us in prayer? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We thank you that your son is still a coming one. And we are anticipating that coming day by day, moment by moment. It could be even today. And we say our prayer response to that is indeed Maranatha. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.